Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu. This is episode 281, Elizabeth Zimmerman and the Emergence of Critical Knitting, part eight, Issues of Intellectual Ownership. My guest is Dr. Lily Marsh. We are recording the eighth of our eight-part conversation today. Welcome, Dr. Lily. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's jump right in. We've titled our series of conversations, Elizabeth Zimmerman and the Emergence of Critical Knitting. By this time, there is evidence of an abundance of critical knitters. And as you say, this transformation was not without its problems. It's interesting that in terms of intellectual investigation, problems can actually be a signal of positive change rather than a sign that something has gone wrong. What kind of problems did you notice in your investigation? Well, one thing that happens when, you know, we have defined uh, critical knitting as uh, the ownership of knitting by the knitter herself, his self, that a knitter can make choices, can make modifications and patterns, can come up with news, is knowledgeable enough about materials and techniques and and um, design ideas that they can start to do their own work. So this this change in the model of craftsmanship offers a tremendous amount of freedom. But with new freedoms come a lot of confusion. And that starts to be pretty clear. Suddenly there are many, many people who are talking about their designs and their uh, work in ways that just hadn't been possible. Remember, before Elizabeth, before this emergence of critical knitting, what we have is very few designers getting almost no credit, right? The, the people who were selling designs to Women's Day, to, to the various yarn manufacturers, they're not credited in any of this. And it's important when we say credit in this intellectual sense, we remember that credit is an economic term, right? So, so what we're talking about is there was no social or economic capital accruing to these people. They got paid once. It was considered a work for hire contract. They got paid. The design no longer belonged to them in any meaningful way. Even in terms of writing, articles were rare. Copy was uncredited when there was copy. They just remain invisible in this sort of anonymous designer tradition. Now, with the emergence of critical knitting and the emergence of new magazines, new workshops, new places to get credit, we start developing both social and economic capital. This explosion of designers and publications in the 80s really generates a massive confusion because you have to remember this was an explosion of people who had no tradition of credit. So suddenly people are just out there getting credit with no, no history generated prior to this. So these new magazines, these new gatherings, they're requiring writers, they're requiring new patterns, they're requiring teachers, workshops require somebody to show up and teach it. This feeling that you could become famous as a sort of celebrity knitter was completely new. You know, no one had ever heard of such a thing prior to Elizabeth, Barbara Walker, Barbara Abbey, Mary Walker Phillips, right? Those original names that sort of started this whole thing. It's interesting that these new designers are, they're pushing boundaries. And this whole idea of intellectual ownership is one of the big boundaries they're pushing. Because suddenly now it becomes really important 
that we know who designed what and what does it mean to have an original design. One of the ways in which you can think about this was actually a early internet styling for discussion, which was the idea of an original design, a derivational design, or an entirely new transformational design. And on that spectrum, you have the issue of, okay, here's a pattern for a sock. How much is it really just derived from somebody else's pattern? How much is it transforming the whole idea? And therefore, it's a new design. And that gets to be very tricky with the new kind of all these new ways of accruing capital. The concept of design innovation as a spectrum from original work to derivational work through to transformational work. At what point does the design become transformed enough to be a new design? Do you have examples? Yeah, yeah. There are actually two examples that really stand out clearly in Elizabeth's archives. And these were ones I found in in the scrapbooks there uh, where she had cut them out and pasted them and had a little commentary about them. Uh, so one of them is what's what a, des- a new design, young designer uh, called a big collar vest. And what it is, is an adult sized Tomlinson jacket. Um, it's a garter stitch. She didn't add sleeves to it. So it's a sleeveless vest knit in one piece with a shawl collar addition. And, you know, it's, it's a Tomlinson. It's an adult size. It's still garters. You know, I mean, you can look at the similarities. You can look at the differences. Is this transformational? Good call. Who knows? You know, there's no consensus on that. Elizabeth felt a little ripped off by it. The second example um, is a ladies home journal, Needlecraft, a design published in the spring of 1980. And they feature a very near easy design. This one is a lot less questionable in my mind. This feels more like Definitely derivational um, because it's a cable yoked sweater, extremely closely taken after her own seamless yoke sweaters, but with a texture stitch instead of color work in the yoke. But Elizabeth did do texture in the yoke on some of her designs when she was doing early cable work. Even more problematically, the directions feature a really familiar graphic of Elizabeth's percentage system for achieving fit. This to me, this is totally derivational. Now, the difference is, and we'll talk about this later, is this is work that's being paid for. Now, no one says that a personal knitter can't look at a pattern and change it all she wants. It's the it's sales that's the point. It's the fact that you're getting paid for this work it becomes problematic then on the copyright scale. And so these two examples sort of in her work where You know, frankly, Elizabeth had done a lot of the same stuff in her own early newsletter, taking a design that she had sold, sort of reworking the colors and reworking it a little bit and doing selling it or using it herself in her newsletter. But it's clear that, you know, nobody has a real handle on this. No, everybody's confused about this. Uh, It's you don't want to impute malicious intent by any means, um, because the sense is that there just was no common understanding of what was allowable and what wasn't much less what was legal and what wasn't. Yeah. And so the to you, the fact that she had clipped these, had notes about them, had them in a place leads you to understand that she was doing an awful lot of thinking about. She was this. doing a lot of thinking about it. And it's a depth both of her sort of, I think maybe outrage is not too, too strong a term over this, but also the sense that she didn't really have an answer for this. 
You know, she felt like that was just a little clo- too close to her work for her comfort. Um, she had her own thoughts about uh, balancing, but her demarcation between credit and not being offered credit really had to do with what she called her technique and her descriptions of technique and her designs, her actual sweaters that she was selling and was was publishing. It's a little bit different in terms of overall copyright issues. She was concerned about technique, who got credit for technique, and who got credit for designs. You mentioned celebrity knitters being very new and the way value was shown in the form of stipends, contracts, and payments. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how it was developing? Yeah, this is fascinating to see happen. And you can see it happening very clearly, particularly last session, we talked about Knitters Magazine and Vogue Knitting and the growth of the gatherings. You can see it in in the surges around publishing in particular. So the very earliest of the new critical knitters were the books by Barbara Walker and and Elizabeth herself and Barbara Abbey and Mary Walker Phillips and Paula Simmons to some extent, who was the hand spinner. She wrote books about spinning and uh, sheep reading. And these early publications in the 50s and 60s really start to turn in the late 70s, early 80s, really start to turn into workshop slots and articles that are credited and paid for in magazines and further contracts for books and design sales. So suddenly this little step into the world of I get credit, I wrote this book then starts to be a place where, oh, I'm now invited to speak. I'm invited to write an article. They want to do a profile on me, that sort of thing. And then in the mid 80s, there's this huge jump in publishing. And I want to correct a misspeaking I did last time. Last week, I spoke about Stephanie Fee uh, as writing the sweater workshop, but it was Jackie Fee and Priscilla Gibson Roberts who wrote Knitting in the Old Way. These are both books that then people want to take classes about this. People want to read more articles. They want to see designs in which talk about this. So there's this huge new, the regional gatherings are growing. There's new books. There's new call for workshop speak um, teachers. And of course, we all know how we feel about workshop teachers. There's a name. You want to, you want to talk to her. You want to meet her. You want to see her work. You like her work. You like what she does. Um, so this idea of this knitting celebrity which would have been unheard of in 1955, is suddenly a valuable position in 1985. But anyway, this idea that these people are generating social capital, so as soon as you have enough fame that people will want to see you, then you get invited to teach workshops. And suddenly then there's economic capital, particularly, of course, in this era of social media, for heaven's sakes, you know, we could all be influencers, you know. If you know how to leverage that stuff, uh, you know, look at the growth of Patreon, right? That people have have managed to leverage social capital into serious economic capital. And that's why suddenly this issue of who owns what, you know, that starts to get serious, pretty important. That starts to need some clarity. And, And there's just not a sense that there is a lot of clarity even now. You know, even now you look across the spectrum and I I don't hear anybody with a really good definition of what's the difference on that spectrum between original, derivational, transformational. That's an issue with democracy, right? 
when there starts to be no authoritative voice or no single authoritative voice, and then you have no authority, right? That's a good thing. That's a chaotic thing. Yeah. It seems also that there becomes a very blurred line between the joy of knitting and the business of knitting. Is there a particular story to help us think about how this was taking place across the spectrum. And I'm just thinking, just like you said, when something becomes really part of our cultural fabric, it's influence becomes very broad. And so distinctions become more difficult. Right, right. And in this world of much more conversation, many more gatherings, many more meetings of people, you have wildly different ideas of what's okay and what's not okay. And when some of those people are doing this as a business, and many of these people are doing this as an extremely pleasurable hobby, there is a lot of room for conflict, for, for tension. One thing that you can see is in uh, is this story, I call it the pretzel neck sweater story. <laughs> You can see this happening across three issues of Knitter's Magazine. Um, and that's another thing I kind of wanted to bring out. Knitter's, as we said last time, is suddenly the voices of the community. So this sense of the confusion or the tensions in the community are played out here in ways that are simply invisible before because there was no place for the voices. There was no central place where people could come and ask questions and talk and discuss and think about uh, the issues of the community. So in um, 1989, they do a series of issues, and we'll get back to this. Um, they do a series of issues on the issue of ownership of designs. And Meg Swanson writes a column and she tells a story about the pretzel neck sweater. Knitting camp the year before, it had been the hot design. It was, everybody had knitted, everybody loved it. It was a great thing. She talked about the fact that it was hugely popular among some of the most knowledgeable people, the people who went to knitting camp, but that no one knew a thing about who had designed it or who, where the design had come from. Right. So this it's like this mystery sweater. It's just there. So that's in the spring 89 issue of Knitters. The next issue, there's a letter to the editor, the summer 89 issue from the commercial pattern publishers, Leisure Arts Publications. And they simply say, oh, we published it in 1988, but we don't know anything about the designer, which is a remarkable statement. You published a design. Right. And you don't know where you got it from. Now, it's. I don't want to use the term theft there simply because I have no idea if the whole office staff turned over, you know, in the intervening years. Well, no, I don't know where it came from. You know, maybe it's just knows? poor bookkeeping. Yeah, maybe it's just poor bookkeeping. Maybe it's just whatever, right? So uh, you don't want to claim that they stole it or anything like that. But what's really gets it fascinating is in the winter 89 issue, there's another letter. And it's from a man, Chris Highland. And he works as a Taki Imports yarn representative. And he travels from yarn shop to yarn shop selling yarns. And he writes that he picked up the design from a yarn shop as he made his rounds and that he had copied it 
and passed it around to other knitters and shops. And he was part of it being circulated. Now, what his connection with leisure arts is, who knows? I don't know anything about that. But anyway, he goes to a, a, a shop on his route. He goes to um, uh, the yarn loft and he talks to the owner there, Sherry Brown. And he's excited about the sweater. He pulls it out and he offers it to her, right? And he writes, that it was, he was terribly excited. This is a great design. You should, you should use this with your customers. And she says right back to him, that's my design. I designed that sweater. And he's, you know, pretty properly horrified by the idea. And he's very embarrassed that he's handing her back and has been making copies because he he didn't think that he got it particularly. He doesn't imply he got it from her. He picked it up somewhere else, right? But it clearly had been lifted from her by sales reps. Now, you know, back in the 80s, 89, she's, she's running a yarn shop. She may not have had time to harvest the capital in terms of teaching gigs, workshops, et cetera, et cetera. But you can imagine that that could be several thousand dollars of loss to her in not having credit for this design. It's like a perfectly encapsulated story about the difference between, oh, we're all in our happy place knitting, and I own this. You don't get to walk off with it. This is my design, right? Sure. I was so fascinated to find this, you know, here in the voices of the community. Here's this little story that happens. Here's this thing you can piece together. And you can just imagine the readers of Knitters in 89 watching this unfold in subsequent publications over time. And I'm also thinking about, you know, responsibility and where does responsibility lie? Certainly we expect designers to be truthful about what is derivation, what is transformation, we also expect publications to look into this a little bit. Yeah, you expect publishers to look into it. I think that one of the things that gets exposed is how happenstance, what we think of as a traditional system, how happenstance it's actually working. Now, all kudos, of course, to Chris Highland for admitting this in publication. I'm you sure know, it was mortifying. He, <sighs> he must have been mortified, you know, but, but, you know, thanks to him, we can now say that sweater belongs to Sherry Brown, or at least she claimed it, you know. Um, But I do think that it's, you know, it's indicative of the sense of confusion. The way you phrase something just there, you said, as you said it, I thought, oh, how did you phrase it? I don't know. I have to listen back. Like the responsibility? Yeah, because I went with the second part of it, which was, how happenstance the publishing. Yeah. But I think too, like in responsibility, cause I'm just thinking, you know, my partner is a musician and musicians surround themselves with music in the way that knitters are knitting all of the time and reading and listening and talking yeah. and looking. And I think there is cha- a challenge for designers in even remembering or knowing what might be derivative. Yeah, Uh, that was the point that I wanted to pick pick you up on because you said something about the designer acknowledging. And I think that that's a a very murky area because what might be transformational for me to suddenly understand how I can do this top-down raglan and, you know, do without the straight lines, right? Make it 
less geometric at the top. That might be transformational in a way, I think, but it might be not transformational for somebody else, right? There's sort of no consensus on what's transformational. You know, it all depends on my, my own personal or the designer's personal level of awareness with what else is going on. And the sense that, you know, to be able to watch this going on in the community, I think very few people read as closely as a professional researcher. I was reading these magazines. So who, whether other people picked up that this is this whole story that's going on over several issues, you know, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Particularly when it was happening in the letters to the editors, not necessarily even the columns of the magazine. Sure. People read differently. Yeah, you read not differently. You read it cover to cover necessarily. Yeah, yes. yeah. So we've been talking broadly about this issue. Do you think that Elizabeth was able to bring clarity to this issue of intellectual property or did she simply bring greater definition to the problem? I think the second one. I think her work and the work of critical knitters in general simply exposed now suddenly a pretty swampy area in what we're all doing. She had her own ways of handling it. When you say that everybody's the designer, when you say everybody is in charge of their own knitting. That's what that, she said. She that's said. what she said. <laughs> If everybody's the boss, who are the workers in a sense? <laughs> in a sense, you know, I mean, this it's a wonderful idea. It doesn't come without problems. There's another place in knitters where you see this happening on a much broader scale and sort of among the people who might be considered more authorities. The story of the pretzel neck sweater came out as a smaller piece of what was pretty much a, a two-year discussion in Knitter's Magazine from the winter of 1987 through the fall of, of 89. And it happens in a combination of letters to the editors and a formal set of opinion columns. And it happens between sort of these newcomers and these longtime knitters and uh, designers. It goes on for eight issues, right? This was fascinating to follow through the magazine. So in the winter of 1987, there's a letter to the editor from a reader called Astrid, and she's asking for some clarity around copyright for designers. That's the opening salvo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in spring of 88, the next issue, there's another letter uh, noting that a knitting book carrying a patent pending notice was puzzling. Uh, and how odd that was, because they pointed out that the patent office has rescinded any patents that relied on hand movements because they, in the end, decided these cannot be patented. That is a skill of the hand and is not a patentable activity. So in the summer of 88, the magazine gets involved formally, right? And they set uh, a new discussion forum feature. The first topic is, quote, copyright. When is it wrong to copy? unquote. That's the title. And they have two experts writing on it. So Norma Elman, who is the chair of an association of professional designers, and Marcia Stewart, who I love the way she, they, they describe her. They say, not a lawyer, but with some direct experience with copyrights and patents as they pertain to garments. So, okay. So somebody who's working in publishing, but not a lawyer. So Elman, the chair of the Association of Professional Designers, claims that sales are the point of contention. And she does not really address the issue of when does a modification create a new original. 
She didn't really address that trend, that spectrum, but she reassures everybody, you can change any pattern you want to knit yourself. It's if it goes for sale, if you're trying to sell that new design. Um, and Stewart notes that historical work is often public domain and that copyright pertain to a specific and individual design only. So we're back to the idea of it's an absolutely specific sweater. And she encourages originality, but she neither does she address the root issue of when does an original move across that spectrum to transform to a new original. She doesn't really address that, which is actually the point of Astrid's original question, right? Uh, so Winter 1988 contains another letter to the editor, and this reader is very specifically asking what changes are necessary to an original design to prevent a copyright infringement. And she notes that trend of changing a color and stitch pattern while retaining the method and structure of original design. She says, you're seeing a lot of that. Is that okay? Spring 1989, the forum is again, dual column forum, Meg Swanson and Mary Rigetti, both designers. Rigetti weighs in that only an exact and precise expression of an original idea can be copyrighted and implied that any change is acceptable. Ooh. Yeah. Just changing the color would be enough. Whoa. Yeah. So that, uh, that I think raised a lot of eyebrows. Meg Swanson, she, um, she writes about uh, the issues of historical continuity and the idea that we need to generate a history um, and the need to know our ancestors. And she, this is when she brings out the pretzel sweater story, the pretzel uh, sweater saga and starts that. And she tells a bunch of stories of her own credit being stripped in publications. As well known as she was at this period, she's often not getting the credit that she wants. Mm. Summer of 89, the forum uh, has two more columns and they try and call, and they try and say, okay, this is the last word, right? So this has now been going on for almost <laughs> two years. In fact, they I think they titled the the next uh, the the column something about next topic, please. <laughs> so they're trying to cut this off, but they have uh, Mary McGovern and the original letter writer Astrid, right? So McGovern is attempting to clarify what are the industry standards, and she says all design sales assign rights to the purchaser, right? So she's saying it's work for hire. You sold that. You own nothing. And further stressed that publication served to drive yarn sales, not encourage the integrity of the craft. Which, that's kind of an old-fashioned idea among this group of knitters, I think. Uh, I think that's a, you know, that I can only imagine must have raised some eyebrows. Um, that's more along the line of what you were saying the original Vogue was doing yes exactly this is that's a very old line sort of way of thinking about designing uh for publication so then astrid and she expresses she's this is hilarious in one sense so she expresses deep gratitude for all this discussion um but still thinks her question wasn't answered <laughs> poor astrid <laughs> like I'm still in the dark here. What are you all talking about, right? And in fact, then four out of the seven letters to the to the editor in that issue were addressing this topic. What does this mean? And the editors say, okay, that's it. We're not talking about this anymore. But the very next issue, in the fall of '89, there's a letter to the editor by Norma Elman, the original writer of the column, 
one the original person they asked to write back in um, summer 88. And she completely contests McGovern's statement about work for hire and talks about a very recent Supreme Court decision, which struck down what she called the confiscatory work for hire contract for freelance professionals, uh, which created the blanket assignation of all rights to the purchaser. So suddenly, not even that's available anymore. We don't even, you know, no. the Supreme Court ruling had struck down this idea of once someone creates something and receives payment for it, it doesn't belong to them anymore. Yeah. They're saying that original designer does possess yes. rights and yeah. ownership. Yeah, because it's like um, McGovern in her writing, she tries to make a really strong distinction between designing a sweater and writing something. And I think the Supreme Court, now I did not go look at the Supreme Court decision, but this decision by the Supreme Court is much more like, oh no, designing a sweater is much more like writing something. Because if you write a book and you sell that book, you still own the writing. You don't own the book. Somebody bought the manifestation of it, but you still own your written work. You know, there's just tons of ink spilled on this mm-hmm. to, to the point of ad nauseum to the editors, I'm sure. They were getting um, tired of it. <laughs> yeah, but but nobody really understands any better at the end. What does that mean? Mm. If I take this sweater and I change X, Y, Z, can I put my name on it and call it my design? It gets very tricky. There's one other example that's interesting that is in Elizabeth's notes um that i that i do kind of want to pull out because even among experienced designers there's just is no you know there's just a lot of confusion so a, a, a designer linda c uh she designs a christmas ornament made out of three cord uh three stitch knit cord right what elizabeth popularized is idiot cord or as i cord eventually um and she sends it uh, it's in the archive there it's a pretty little celtic knot sort of ornament and she asks if she can sell the design she says i think i can successfully describe the manufacture of a three-stitch cord without seriously quoting you but is idiot cord your invention please advise so right here you see the massive confusion a elizabeth didn't invent idiot cord that's a long published technique she popularized it among americans right but she didn't own it b as long as you said, here I'm quoting Elizabeth's directions for idiot cord, as long as you give credit in the, you know, you can quote someone, right? I, and, and she's, but she's feeling like, I can't, I can't use your words at all, right? Because that would somehow be copyright. That's not copyright. That's an issue of plagiarism. That's not a legal issue. That's an ethical issue, right? As long as you give credit, you're covered. The idea that she had made this clever little Christmas warrant, that's her design. That's the copyrightable thing. And so you see in this, this little query, the massive sense of confusion about what's the owned thing here? What's the not owned thing? What's credit? What's ethical? What's not credit at all? The I-cord. Right. So so it's this lovely little example of all the massive little knot of confusion that people were feeling. 
where was Elizabeth in all this? Did she express her own thoughts and feelings about these issues? I think it's pretty obvious things were on her mind since she was scrapbooking and and clipping and keeping files about things. Yeah, yeah. I'm so grateful she was a scrapbooker. (laughs) It's just an archivist's dream. So Elizabeth's point, she had, I think, had no more clarity than anybody else. She was never able to make a statement herself about that spectrum between original, derivation, transformational. She would never made a statement. But what she was activated by was the idea of creating an, a, a tradition of people we know as our ancestors in this work, right? Who are the mothers? And she did that in a couple different ways. Uh, but she also, was exercised about, these are my designs. That seamless yoke sweater, that's my design. That Norwegian sweater, that's my design, right? So she really wanted credit for her designs, but she was more than happy to offer credit over technique. Those were the two areas that she felt she had clarity in. She lamented the reality that there was very little traceable history of who invented what in knitting that had been such a long uh, thing, but she made a very strong effort to name names when she knew them. And in fact, you see that particularly in Knitting Workshop in the Pie Shawl, where in this publication, that's her third book, uh, she talks about Emily Auker's cast on for a circular knit object. And that was important to Elizabeth. Where she could offer credit on technique, she offered it. The other way she did, when she didn't have a way to to credit an actual person, she used the term invention. She would often talk about puzzling out a technique and maybe even spending hours trying to figure out how to do something, but she couldn't imagine that she was the first person who figured that out. I mean, there have been a lot of intelligent knitters over the decades and hundreds of years. She really, you know, felt strongly that this was unvented, she says. The other thing is that's kind of important to remember is she's working out of a tradition that didn't really expect credit in some ways. You know, she was pretty good about getting her credit. But but there's an interesting thing about that original Erin sweater pattern that she's asked to puzzle out by Vogue Knitting back in 57. So she goes, she meets them. This is the story I told before. She meets them. She talks to them. They give her the pattern. She agrees to puzzle out. There's never any talk of payment. She spends weeks on this. You know, She spends a lot of hours puzzling out this sweater, makes the sweater, sends it back to them. She doesn't hear anything until the actual publication comes out and she gets her copy of Vogue Knitting. And her only recognition is as the source of the wool. There's no recognition of her work in doing this. And and what's key here is there's no sense that she thought that was strange. This is, to some degree, absolutely normal. Right. So whether we want to tie that with, you know, the the undervaluing of domestic labor or what there's, you know, she's still a person of her time and she's got a foot in both worlds. As strongly as she's driving the new understanding, she still has expectations around behavior in the old style as well, you know, as we all do. Let's talk a little bit more about easy and this term unvention. Help us to understand how the word unvention provides insight into what may be seen as Elizabeth's ambivalence to the issue of originality. 
Yeah, and she was ambivalent. She was very ambivalent. You know, she she has a very idealistic admiration for the free sharing of information. And she talks about it. She talks about it quite eloquently. You hear it in the Emily Carr quote that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. um, where she talks about, isn't it, isn't she quotes Emily Carr saying, isn't it my job to give out what I know so that we can all use this information, we can all participate. And at the same time, there's plenty of expressions of frustration in her writing uh, and in her notes and in her scrapbooks about her frustration when credit was not offered to her. And her own understanding, she you can see her struggling with this as she develops this term unvention. And, and it's and it's she can you can watch it developing over multiple publications for her. She doesn't like arrive at this full bore. She kind of uses it as a reference in her effort to balance recognition. And she uses it about technique. So it's this recognition between her own resourcefulness and these multiple preceding generations of knitters who were equally resourceful in her mind. You know, she didn't want to try and claim utter originality in most cases of simple technique, but she was in, in attentive to, to assigning it where she could, with the example of, say, Emily Ockers uh, casting on. In her notes, there are there are plenty of places where people are saying, you know, I I taught your I taught this sweater in a class, you know, how do I Uh, but I made a bunch of copies. How do I reimburse you for this? There's complaints about instructors who use a lot of her materials and don't credit her particularly. She is solidly settling on this term by 1974 in the Knitter's Almanac. And she does a little nice description of how she arrived at the term invention. She writes describing an inventor as, quote, someone in a clean white coat a workshop full of tones and references and charts like sales charts and graphs like the economy and a horde of assistant knitters doing the donkey work. So that's what she thinks of as an inventor, right? But she felt herself to be something quite different, right? So here's the quote of what she says, but unvented, ah, one unvents something, one unearths it, one digs it up, one runs it down to whatever recess of the eternal consciousness it has gone to ground. I very much doubt if anything really new is really new when one works in the prehistoric medium of wool with needles. The earth is enriched with the dust of millions of knitters who have held wool and needles since the beginning of sheep. Seamless sweaters and one-row buttonholes, knitted hems and phony seams. It is unthinkable that these have, in mankind's history, remained undiscovered and unknitted, end quote. Now, I excerpted a little bit there because she writes a little bit more extensively. So so it's clear that she wishes to be remembered in her design. She wishes credit. Um, But she also wishes to honor all those other knitters. And where she can, she uses names. And where she doesn't feel like she has a name, she uses the term invention. You know, it's kind of funny because she does this sort of little parody of professionalism while at the same time, saying it's important to give credit. It's important to recognize that. So it became for her, I think, this sort of working, if somewhat imperfect, resolution of recognition for for innovation in technique. Do you think that invention is wrapped up in Elizabeth Zimmerman's legacy? If we see her as, as, you know, being on the continuum of this history of knitters, Yeah, I do. Even though not a lot of people picked up that term, you don't hear that term outside of her writing. But I think it's a very clear sense 
that what she really wanted goes back to that description of Linda Ligon uh, writing about Elizabeth at the spinoff autumn retreat at one point. I don't remember what year that was, but where she talks about Elizabeth sitting in the middle of the knitters and quietly knitting while the fireworks go off around her uh, and people are discovering things. Mm-hmm. I think that the way that the term invention for Elizabeth was a way of saying, I'm always in the middle of these knitters. I'm always in the middle of the, the community. Um, and even if I can't hear your voice and I can't see your face and I, and I don't know who you are, there's just wildly innovative practice going on. In fact, in fact, um, Stephanie Pearl McPhee, she writes in the anniversary edition of Knitter's Almanac, I think. She writes about her sense, even now, you know, so long after Elizabeth's death, she writes of her awareness of Elizabeth in the middle of a song, that somebody's doing a pie shawl or somebody's casting on using this particularly clever thing that she wrote about in this book or someone's thinking about how do we do that? You know, that, that there are so much of Elizabeth still in the middle of the most contemporary forms of knitting. Um, mm. And, you know, I, I think you can see that all, all over the place. But I do think that the term invention for her was a way of both claiming a space there and acknowledging that many people held that space. You talked about legacy. And I remember in our part one, you provided us with an overview of Elizabeth's entire life, some of the main points before we got started talking about very specific things about her. And you mentioned that when she died, her obit was carried by national news organizations. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, the New York times came out with a, with an obituary national public radio called schoolhouse press for interviews, Canadian broadcast corporation called for interviews. There was a lot of notice when she died, you know, it's an indication Um, of her influence. Yeah. And she wasn't even a New York figure. Remember she's Wisconsin. So it's not even like she's a local celebrity in the city. Um, Yeah. I think that that's, uh, just really an enormous kind of thing. You know, her note, her note to knitting campers the year. So, so she retired in 89 because it became clear to her family, to Meg, uh, that, you know, she was experiencing a lot more mental confusion and they just, they, they felt like it's time to, it's time for her to slow down. And so they canceled knitting camp that year. Uh, and they spend that summer pretty much capturing as much as her memory and her, her thoughts as they could. Uh, and that all actually all came out in the, what became the fourth book knitting around, which is a combination of memoir and knitting book. Right. Um, and, and one, the thing that's also interesting in that book is they include a lot of her watercolor paintings. She was quite the painter, uh, and painted all her life. In canceling knitting camp that year, they she sent a note uh, to them, and it expressed her deep pleasure at the quote spreading and the acceptance of my knitting theories throughout the country, and at how quote looking at these rewarding involvements happily and gratefully, it becomes much easier for me to ask you all for your blessing as I say farewell for you. My heartfelt, my most heartfelt wishes and thoughts are with you always. Good knitting. 
um, she kind of closes it there in very similar ways to the way she said goodbye to all her knitters um, in the newsletter, the original newsletter, which were written in, in the form of a letter. Um, so the sense that her dialogue was gonna keep going, uh, I think is significant. Right as I was finishing the writing of my dissertation that I'm casting about for the closing, right? There's a wonderful video by Stephen West that came out uh, and he does a, a music video. It's a parody of Katy Perry's fireworks. And it's a wonderful video. And he talks about Elizabeth and he talks about, you know, as you're watching this, you can see her influence everywhere in this. I, you know, it, it's a shawl that he's knitting. It's a mystery knit along. It looks like it's a shawl, uh, you know, but he talks about Lizzie Zimmerman and he talks about having nice wool and he talks about use your brain and he talks about you can be innovative uh it's really it's really a, just an amazing you know and you know Stephen west you know he's campy as all get out and gender bending and he's dancing around the streets of amsterdam in this thing within this like this weird this, this hilariously funny um sort of red polka dot onesie that he's wearing um and and all you can think of is in, in a sense you know she made him possible. She opened up the doors to someone like him and, and he's taking her with him into the future. It was, it was, a, it was the perfect ending. I was so excited, but to, to just quote pieces of it, but it's just, it's just such a wonderful video and she's right there. She's right there. And it's like 2016, I think is, is when I found it. Yeah. No, it's just very cool. Very cool. For um, some closure, we had determined ahead of time that we would ask each ask each other a question. Yeah. And I haven't answered very many questions in this conversation. <laughs> so I'll go first. I'll answer a question first. Okay. Okay. So when people ask me who my influences were, Elizabeth Zimmerman is a big one. Ursula Le Guin is another big one for me um, about how to be the artist housewife. Um, but for me, there was a very special woman, B. Stromberg, uh, who was a weaver in my town. She had 10 kids and she uh, was a noted weaver. She had a huge loom. She had a big glamokra loom. Uh, I think it was at least 48 inches wide. And she had it in her kitchen. Uh, and she was for me like this wonderful example of how to do your work in the middle of domesticity. And she would weave. She would weave while she waited for the brownies to come out of the oven. She would weave while some kid was waiting to come home from basketball practice. And so I want to ask you, who were your influences on doing the work that you do? You've mentioned one of them as, an, as, a, as a teaching uh, mentor, but who do you think of as a creative mentor? I came to creativity very late. I am the oldest of three daughters and my both of my parents and both of my sisters have amazing and, and have always exhibited amazing fine motor skills and interest in handcrafts and making things. I, and through adulthood, it's a very bookish individual. I had a lot of anxiety about 
the mess and the chaos that handcrafts involve. We lived in a very small household. So all of their crafts and things that they were doing took up a great deal of space. In my mind, a great deal of energy to like keep that all together. (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. I really didn't want any part of it. I was always very much like, I'll just have my book and sit in the sun and read it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Nice and tidy. (laughs) Very tidy. (laughs) I studied literature in college. I became an educator and it it wasn't that these things didn't influence me because they had a great deal of influence over me and I participated, but I did not see myself that way until I shifted my career a little bit and shifted away from the English teaching classroom to being the gifted and talented coordinator. Suddenly reading every classic was a lot less important and I really needed to engage with my students where they were in their gifted progress. And our school is admirable because we subscribe to the six federally recognized areas of giftedness, which include fine motor, gross motor, leadership, interpersonal skills, not just GPA. Yeah. Um, And not just STEM. Exactly. Yeah. And so At the same time, I was taking a class called Crochet for Stress Relief from the woman I hoped would be my boss because I was transitioning (laughs) from the English department and applying for this gifted program. And I would report directly to my assistant superintendent. And Mm -hmm. she was the one teaching the class. And I thought, if I'm a loser at Crochet, it's over. (laughs) I'm not getting this. Nothing nothing like a little pressure there on yourself, Sarah. (laughs) She's not. She's not going to be interested. And it turned out she taught the first session. It was winter. She taught the first session. We went home with our little washcloth, dishcloth knitting or crocheting. And it snowed. It snowed and we had the weekend. And then we had like two snow days back to back. Uh And I was so fascinated with crochet and had so little supplies. I kept undoing and re-crocheting <laughs> my stupid little washcloth. <laughs> and and you have been a quest on stash ever since then. Yeah. So now I never run out. <laughs> I never run out. Never commit that crime again. But I was just so, I didn't even need to manufacture an interest (laughs) in it. I was hooked, literally. There was was no faking it for the job, huh? No. And from then, you know, I really, I think I fell into crafting and, and handwork and different things so completely because it was in my system. I had watched... Um, my father, he was very interested in um, reenacting pre-1840 life. He yeah. was a gunsmith. He did leather work. He did quill work. He yeah. um, worked on carving a horn into a, for black powder. Yeah, yeah. My mother 
did baskets, she did canning, she was amazing seamstress. So once, once the switch was turned on, uh, no holds barred, huh? No wow. holds barred. And I would say the one challenge is I had that challenge of, I had a lot of terms and knowledge about doing things like, especially sewing. I knew all the things about sewing. Totally. I watched her make dresses for entire bridal parties. I knew things, but I didn't know how to do them. Yeah. 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 Knowing things is not the same as being able to take the stitches. That's the right. Muscle memory. Yeah. 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 What you talked about historical reenactment. You know, I think that many, many people who shear away from the sort of value judgments of contemporary creativity work out their creativity in historical reenactment. You know, I, you know, I were in the town that I grew up in, uh, Lafayette, Indiana, there's a huge, one of the largest historical reenactments in the country is at Fort Wyatnam with the Feast of the Hunter's Moon. And until they started actually charging serious ticket price, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people and everybody in town gets involved because it's a major fundraising thing. You can run a booth there for popcorn and the Boy Scouts make a lot of money, right? Um, the Boy Scouts running the booth. Uh, so everybody in the entire town has a backlog of costumes that they've made and skills they can demonstrate. And you can see people really getting into it in ways that they would not give themselves permission to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting way of expressing creativity without calling it creativity. It sort of lives under the mask of historical reenactment. Interesting. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating. So the fact that your dad was a was a reenactor is a very familiar world to me. Uh, and some of the most amazing creativity happens in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah, the um, the number of skills and the dedication is Yeah. But really your story, your story of not being considered not considering yourself creative. Um I was the same way. In high school I was definitely academic track. You know, I never took an art class anywhere, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> um, in fact, to the point of when I was part of Artist Own, which was our big craft gallery, a really nice gallery there in Lafayette, um, I happened to overhear some people who were people who knew me in high school talking about me being at the gallery and they all assumed that I was the office manager, that I could not possibly be one of the artists. I was the office manager. That's why she's there. And they all, yeah, oh, yeah, that must be right. That must be right. And it was like, uh, no. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, nobody would have assumed I was creative. We're late bloomers, Lily. Yeah, that's what it is. We're just late bloomers. Thankfully, you know, I feel like late blooming is such an advantageous position because you're old enough to give. Okay, I'm not going to swear. <laughs> but to give no credence to anybody else's value judgment on you. Yeah, You're old yeah. enough to not care. Yeah, I have a question for you. Okay, what's my question? So I, I think in our conversations I've been most fascinated by the fact that you undertook 
a dissertation topic and conducted this original research surrounded by artifacts and schoolhouse press. And that yeah. you devoted significant time to being there and being surrounded by the writings and belongings and process of this person you were studying. So when you think back on your time there, was there a moment when you felt closest to your subject? Maybe even to the point of having trouble being objective, like you sort of need to be as a mm -hmm. researcher mm -hmm. and an academic. Well, I had read and been influenced by Elizabeth long before I did the work, right? So I, I knew her uh, in a more casual sense, certainly than when I started research. Um, and I wouldn't say that it struck me all at once. There wasn't a moment, but we talked earlier about how comfortable she was with this blend of domesticity and, and in fact, actually using domesticity to drive her creative energies. Um, and that, it appears as the tip of an iceberg in her public writings, right, in the books that I had read. But when you really start to delve into her and you realize how, how for her, that wasn't a difficulty in the same way that I experienced it so profoundly. I mean, I remember when I first started being creative in terms of, of weaving designs, in terms of the knitted sculptural work, you know, I, I went through the period of like, I can't, how can I do this? I, you know, I remember, uh, how can I, I'm going to have to get divorced. I'm going to have to, you know, like live in New York City. I'm going to, you know, I mean, all these visions of, what did it mean to be a serious creativity, creative person uh, were really overpowering to me and, and felt like, well, 90% of my life disqualifies me for that. Um, but the realization that in her writings, and, and so by the time I'm doing the research, I decided not to get divorced. I mean, I actually really loved my husband. Um, I didn't run off to New York City. I figured out ways to stay in my house and be the artist housewife that Ursula Le Guin talked about as such a difficult position. It required years of therapy as well. Um, but then to see for her, how this just wasn't anything except a tremendous asset was, was really profoundly moving. And maybe if I'd seen that earlier, I could have done without certain years of, of therapy. But, 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 you know, that was the thing that just like, I, I'm still just like amazed at that. And, and started now, granted, you know, she was born in 1910. And, and had a tremendously different idea than I did about domesticity and had far deeper roots in it than I, born in 1960, right? Right on the cusp of this massive cultural change that's happening for women. Um, but, still, but still enough tied to domesticity. So I graduated high school in 1978. That was the year Title IX forced every college to stop looking at 
the sex of the applicant. You know, before then, there was no guarantee that a woman could go to college, no matter how smart she was, no matter how capable, right? So there, you know, it may be that, that that's our time, that, that that tangle existed in such a tight knot, but just sort of looking at her archives and realizing, you know, in some ways I was able to do that, to sort of turn the domestic space into the driver of creativity. And to this day, you know, my studio is still in my house and, and you know, I start every morning in the studio with a load of laundry for the household because, you know, that's, that's how I've set up my studio practice, you know. Um, but that, that was for me the really, wow, what if I'd never had to struggle with that? That's the that's the point for me that is sort of most, you know, thought provoking. Most, medi- you know, the thing I think about most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the thing about doing this kind of work is you never end the questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're never we're not ending yet either. No, no, we're not. So we have a few announcements for our listeners. We want to thank everyone first of all for listening along to this series for communicating with us what has interested you or just how much you're enjoying the episodes this has been deeply gratifying for both of us and yes very much so this um even though we're having tons of fun this is a lot of work for both <laughs> of us so it's kept us going and kept us motivated over many months Uh, to really see this project through and we sort of love each other and don't want it to end. So we, I don't know know what I would do without you, Sarah. (laughs) We have a few additional things coming up. One is that we will be making a presentation, a set of presentations at fiber world. The date is July 24th. There's a session at 11.30 and a session at 3.30. Dr. Lilly, would you like to talk a little bit about what our topic will be? Sure. Sure. So we have been invited by this online gathering to do uh, a couple of our lectures. So we've titled it Elizabeth Zimmerman and the Arc of Knitting History because they have asked for a not particularly linear description of Elizabeth. So, I mean, we're going to try and avoid the, this happened, this happened, and then that happened sort of aspect of it. Um, but we will give a little overview of her for people who are not as intimately inter- uh, knowledgeable about her as we are. Um, but to really then talk about some of the big picture items in which she was influential in terms of, of many of the topics we've discussed here. So as difficult as it will be to condense eight plus hours, because most of our discussions have lasted longer than an hour, um, eight plus hours into two uh, one hour segments. Uh, I think that's what we're going to be doing. So I'm quite excited about it. Um, It's a presentation, not a class. So you have to go to Fiber World online. And we're not quite sure how they're managing this right now. Um, But it looks like you're going to have to register for the conference, of course, for the the gathering. Uh, But then our presentation may or may not require a further class registration. We're not quite sure about that. Um, but we're very excited about it. And we'd actually like to ask your listeners for a little bit of input. So if you were in charge of, as the listener, were in charge of cutting down our verbiage to two hours, 
what would you include? What were the parts that were most interesting, illuminative, conducive to self-understanding of your own creativity uh, for you as the listener? Or what were the parts that were most surprising, right, that you had never heard of such a thing before? Um, so, the, so we're very interested in, in our listeners' feedback on this issue. Um, as an academic, I must admit, I tend to think in terms of big words. Um, but the, one of the reasons these, these things have worked so well is because we were able to tie the big words of dialogic community or disruption and transformation or cultural production and reproduction to actual events that you can see in Elizabeth's life the, the, and, the, and the rise of Knitters Magazine, that sort of thing. Um, but I'd really be interested in what, the, what our listeners have to say about what they found illuminating. So we will provide links to Fiber World so you can find out more about this online event that's happening in July over several days. And we welcome your input on the questions Dr. Lilly mentioned on Ravelry, um, reporting with comments to the yarns at yinhu.com website or on Instagram. I also link Dr. Lilly's content in contact information each time we record. So any of those places is a great place. There's the other thing we're doing too. Yes. So <laughs> Elizabeth's birthday. Elizabeth's birthday. Is August 9th. And we do have some items of interest, we feel, that haven't fit cleanly into the eight parts we've organized. And we were also hoping to have a little birthday celebration and an opportunity for you, the listener, to join us on a Zoom call. So we've set aside August 8th, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's the eve of Easy's birthday. And it's a Sunday night. So it's a Sunday night to invite you to a Zoom call. Information will be forthcoming, but you could put it on your calendar. And it will be a chance for us to share a few snippets of really cool information that didn't fit into the other segments to entertain some of your questions. Ooh, her teasers are so good. Yeah, and uh, to meet other people who've been enjoying this series. Yeah, You can mark that on your calendars and we will be giving you more information. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll yeah. be a lot of fun. We have to decide on what flavor of cake we're making. I know. I think everyone should bring a cake. <laughs> Everybody could hold their little cupcake up and yeah. we could blow out the one candle at all the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? Hey, when you were researching Dr. Lily, did you know anything about her, her culinary? Um... Oh, well, yeah. In some of her writings, uh, in one of the unpublished pieces, that I, I, I must have been hungry. I must have been hungry when I was doing the research because I, I did save some of her fish and <laughs> fish. And I think there was a fit, couple of fish recipes and a potato soup recipe, but I don't know that she was a baker. I don't know that she was much of a baker about things. I wonder uh, what we could find out about what kind of cake she preferred. I don't know. I Maybe she, right. I'm thinking she liked things like beef jerky, <laughs> And trail mix, if she's on the back of Arnold's motorbike. Oh, oh, no, I do know. Okay. So, 
very early. Oh my gosh, I had forgotten about this completely. Very early on, in like 52 or 53, even well before she publishes her first article, she's selling gingerbread houses. She's making and selling gingerbread houses on the Women's Exchange in Milwaukee. Um, and I'll have to hunt that up. I have okay. forgotten all about that. But yeah, for, for a very, for, I, I don't, I, if it happened more than one year or maybe two years, that she's sort of um, advertising and selling traditional Bavarian gingerbread houses so i guess you know gingerbread we could make gingerbread muffins that gives me some ideas doesn't it yeah doesn't it <laughs> i've forgotten all about that yeah my mother used to make gingerbread houses for us at christmas time um but uh yeah i think i even have a picture in one of her advertisements i'll have to hunt that up and see if i can okay yeah sounds great well, that is a great place for us to conclude today. Thank you yes, so much, now that Dr. All, Lily. Now that we're all hungry for gingerbread. Now we're hungry. We're properly hungry. 